Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast, where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park. And also not that too. Ryan Rogers and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 35, Return, recorded on October 15th, 2022. It's Apple Day. Kids are out selling apples, fundraising for beavers and cubs, but not me. I'm here recording this with you. Thanks for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. Check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song T-Shirts, and our outro is Death of a Dream. We have corrections today. It turns out the shortest people in the world are found in Indonesia, but the shortest tempered person in the world still is Shannon Doherty. Uh, I said Weird Al's The Biggest Ball of Twine in Minnesota was eight or nine minutes long, when of course it's only six minutes and 48 seconds long, and I should have known better than that. I'll have to return my membership to the close personal friends of Al. Sorry, Al. As penance, I gave a spoken word performance of The Biggest Ball of Twine uh, for the kids' bedtime story the other day, and I was woefully unfamiliar with the words, and it made the retelling all the more dramatic. Uh, And since I was a kid reading dinosaur books, there was this critter that's named a Lesothosaurus, which is named after the country Lesotho, and it's spelled L-E-S-O-T-H-O, which I interpret as Lesotho, but that's not quite right. It's an African nation, and so is pronounced with an African dialect, which Junior Ryan didn't know anything about, and so he's had a long-time mispronunciation of this country. Uh, Some British narrator that I watched in a video called it Lesotho, and I saw another man call it Lesotho. And I'm inclined to say, obviously, Lesotho must have been incorrect, so let's go with Lesotho. And thus, the name of the dinosaur is no longer Lesothosaurus, but Lesothosaurus. But don't forget, it's L-E-S-O-T-H-O. (laughs) when you go to look it up yourself. In dinosaur news, the subject came up during my interview with Dr. David Hone in episode 16, Malcolm, that many new dinosaur discoveries, in fact, aren't dug out of the ground, but are dug out of the archives and museums. And there is a new sauropodomorph, which proves itself to be just this type of discovery. Apparently, after a neotype was named for Plateosaurus, which is when a holotype specimen is replaced by a new agreed-upon and improved specimen, a large but relatively undescribed Plateosaurus specimen was discovered to no longer fit the new definition. In fact, turned out the original definition was a little broad, and it generally described a variety of specimens which may not have all been the same uh, type of animal. Authors of the paper Anumasipodin sauropodomorph from Trossingen Formation hidden as Platyosaurus for 100 years in the historical Tubingen Collection, says that based on the phylogenetic, phylogenetic analysis, a new species, Tubingosaurus myofritsorum, is now the earliest massopodon discovered in the Trossingen beds. That's a bit of a mouthful. The new species was named due to distinct atopomorphies, including a heel-like projection on the ilium and a straight lateral margin in metatarsal 2. This bucks the historical trend of painting all the sauropodomorphs in the early 20th century as part of Platyosaurus, as surely not all the, quote, medium to large size sauropodomorphs from Germany belonged to the same species. The authors concluded that it was clear, quote, there is no consensus in phylogenetic terms uh, on Platyosaurian features as massopodon features since, through the literature, two incompatible overall topologies have been produced. They believe that Tabingosaurus and massopodons were an early diversification of sauropodomorpha, who went on to occupy the vacant niches in Pangaea left by the Rhynchosaurs and Aedosaurs after the late Triassic extinction. 
It said a thorough revision needs to be done to the material referred to Platyosaurus trasingensis, of which there is quite a bit, uh, and that revision will remove, quote, any noise that may have been added by using all the literature in which all specimens were considered Platyosaurus. The animal was named after the city of Tübingen in Germany, uh, just like Lesotho, who knows if I'm pronouncing Tübingen correctly, uh, near where the fossil was collected back in 1922, while its genus name honors Yui Fritz and Wolfgang Meyer. In other news, published in August 2022, important new information on the biology and ecology of one of the earliest ornithischian dinosaurs was published in a paper named Osteohistology and Taphonomy Supports Social Aggregation in the Early Ornithischian Dinosaur Lesotosaurus Diagnosticus. Lesotosaurus is named after the nation Lesotho. Diagnosticus recognizes that its remains are useful in the original recognition and diagnosis of other members of the Fabrosauridae family, or put differently, it's the diagnostically useful Lesotho lizard. However, it's worth noting the family Fabrosauridae is now obsolete and simply referred to as an ornithischian. And recall the news from episode 34, The Main Road, uh, where we had that article hypothesizing on the origins of ornithischians themselves. Well, this reclassification of Fabrosauridae and Lesuthosaurus's hazy phylogenetic position is a result of all that confusion in the origins of ornithischia. Uh, so you can see how all this stuff is tying together. In any case, even though ornithischians and their origins are troublesomely unclear, what can be gleaned about them is therefore fascinating and informative. In this paper, Lesuthosaurus was selected because there are there was a comparatively large sample size of individuals of multiple growth stages from the Elliott Formation in South Africa, uh, it was making it a great choice to investigate the plesiomorphic conditions of ornithischian growth. So you want to picture Lesuthosaurus? It was about six feet long, although the largest specimens, this paper says, indicate that the remains are not of a fully mature individual, so they could have grown perhaps larger. And they're from the early Jurassic, and specifically the Hetangian sta stage, and they may have been omnivorous. Uh, the species is known by its syntype, BMNHRUB uh, or UCLV17, uh, housed at the British Museum of Natural History, and it was excavated from the Upper Elliot Formation. It's comprised of three large blocks and numerous small pieces of matrix containing many cranial and postcranial bones from at least two individuals. So the paper says they grew quickly into sexual maturity, somewhere between two to four years of age, and then their growing slowed down as they continued to grow larger past six years of age. This is faster growth than has been calculated for other early Jurassic ornithischians like Lequintosaurus and Scutellosaurus, which have similar body sizes. The authors examined the osteohistology of an ontogenetic series of Lesuthosaurs using multiple limb elements to assess the maximum body size, life history, growth dynamics, and potential for sociality. Quote, we found that Lesuthosaurus grew rapidly during early and mid-ontogeny, with its growth rate decreasing between two to four years of age, possibly indicating the onset of reproductive maturity, says the authors. They concluded that at six years of age, the animals were still not fully grown, and the presence of, quote, multiple individuals of very varying ontogenetic stages in a monodominant bone bed strongly suggests that it lived in multi-generational herds, indicating that, along with Venezuelan Lequintosaura venezuelae, social behavior developed early in Ornithischian evolutionary history. There we go. All right, with the corrections and the dinosaur news out of the way today, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. Joining me today is Drew Hagen. Drew and I met when his little brother was looking to cross a bridge, but I was underneath and I was hungry. And when Drew's little brother crossed the bridge, I jumped out to eat him, but he said, wait, I'm the smallest. If you wait for my older brother... 
Drew, he'll make a better meal. And I thought that was a good deal, so for no good reason, I let his brother pass, and I waited for Drew to cross next. And when Drew crossed the bridge, I jumped out to eat him, but he said, wait, I'm not half as large as my big brother. If you wait for him, he'll make a better meal. So I thought that was a good deal, and for no good reason, I let Drew pass and waited for his next bigger brother to cross, but there was no third brother. I was tricked and hurt and offended, so needless to say, lawyers got involved, and instead of relinquishing a person into my custody to eat, Drew agreed to join me on the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, and I still owe you a food gift certificate from that, so I'm sorry about that. Uh, getting lawyers involved is always a fun way to start a relationship. Would you agree? Well, I'm on here now, so I have to agree, yes. <laughs> and until you uh, complete the terms of our agreement, you will remain on this show. <laughs> for as long as it takes do you think lawyers get a fair representation in the film in the book in jurassic park that is really interesting um as far as i've heard and seen yeah i think they do get a very good take and representation in the movie although i wouldn't want to eat one or be one or have anything to do with them really so yeah it's perfect it was it was funny how um, Gennaro is a totally different character in in the book than he is in the movie, and uh, in the movie he kind of gets reduced down to this um, kind of sh- you know shivering little loser, <laughs> and uh, he's kind of a, a, t- a tough guy in in the in the book that has to face his fears and stuff like that. So it's uh, I think he gets kind of misrepresented in the film in a way. Yeah, I agree, but that also goes to what they had to do for the movie to keep the plot going versus mm-hmm. what can actually be done in the book. And so having them shift things around and distill everything down to the base essence of the story, you know, a lot of things had to be cut and combined. And that's actually kind of the cool thing to go back and read the book after watching the movie, read the book first, see what they changed in the movie and figure out all these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's uh, seeing the adaptations and what the, the choices they make, um, it feels like there was a, like, I think there was earlier drafts of the script that it was Regis, Ed Regis that was in there. And then they switched it to Gennaro. There were some drafts that didn't have Ian Malcolm, but they ended up putting him back in. And it's, uh, it's amazing how they, they didn't know exactly what they wanted to do with it to, to begin with. And I feel like Gennaro might have been one of those pieces that was kind of just scrapped together and it's, he didn't quite get the full shake that he, he might've got. They didn't feel like he was an especially important character. That's for sure. Yeah, and they combined Regis with Gennaro, right? Mm-hmm. They gave a lot of Regis's lines to Gennaro in some respects, and then obviously the ending of Regis was given to Gennaro, correct? <laughs> in a way, yes. Yeah, they certainly um, made sure Tyrannosaurus got the lawyer. <laughs> and on, on the subject of um, different drafts and everything like that, one of the things... I found recently was a concept sketch by John Bell from 1991, where it lays out the visitor center area of the uh, park. So instead of like the full map, it was just from the helipad to the visitor center. And it seems like from then it was actually a very like tight and short ride, which when compared to the beginning of the book, when they arrive on the island, it was rather short visit a short trek from the helicopter pad to the visitor center mm-hmm. so i like that they did expand it in the movie and made it seem like the helipad was quite a ways away mm-hmm. 
And that's kind of where Gennaro gets to shine a little bit. He, he uh, gets to explain what the heck he's doing there. <laughs> yeah, shut him down versus uh, shut napalm down. the island. Yeah. I don't know if there was any lawyers in the Biosyn board of directors or not. The only other lawyer in the book was, I think, Daniel Ross was mentioned at one point. And, uh, and yeah, so we don't actually get a lot of lawyers in the book, but uh, Gennaro's there. He doesn't do especially a large amount of, you know, anything with the law, although I think he uses his skills to um, to convince the the people on the boat to turn around. He, he makes some argument that the, the Maritimes Act requires that they turn around right away, and uh, he said a very official, and I think the one lawyer yeah, skill no, he that used. that was great. <laughs> All you got to do is speak a lot of big words and legalese, and people assume you're talking correct. So what do I got here? Gennaro, is, uh, he's put through the ringer in Jurassic Park, but he comes away unscathed, which is nice for a change. He's, um, I think he's actually more harmed by Dr. Grant when Grant beats him up a little bit than he was by any of the dinosaurs. He sees the Tyrannosaur carnage when he goes with Muldoon to go pick up pick up the people and, and uh, discovers Regis's corpse. He finds Nedry's corpse eaten to bits and covered in compies. He, I think he gets, comes face to face with a raptor in the uh, generator shed. And then he gets locked in a car like I'd have seen in Cujo <laughs> when the compies are in the, in the, in the shed with him. And that's where Grant finds it when he turns the power back on. And uh, I don't know if he gets hit or injured. He must be injured at some point by by something. But yeah, he uh, he 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 fights a lot of dinosaurs. That's for sure. He, Gennaro does a lot of good stuff in the book, and I think he he gets misrepresented in the film. That's too bad. So imagine you're sent to the island to figure out if it's safe or not, and you're going through all of that. I can't imagine what would be going through your mind versus just stop everything and bomb everything right now. Cause he brings that up rather early in the discussion of whether or not the Island is safe. Right. Mm -hmm. Tells them, Hey, if anything goes wrong, we're just going to level the place. So him going through each one of these steps, each one of these scenarios, you can't imagine just like it clicking in his mind. Hey, let me get off this Island. <laughs> I think that he, so one of the shyster sort of things that he does in terms of like uh, what Grant gets really upset with him about is this idea that he's shirking his responsibility. And what um, what I think is somewhat overlooked in, in it all is that we know that there have been too many deaths during the construction of the, the park. That's why this investigation is um, <clears throat> embarked upon. And we know the dinosaurs are getting off the island. That is something that, like, hey, we're finding these specimens. There are, seem to be critters that are not on the island. And so we know that the park is failing and that dinosaurs are getting loose and killing people. We know that dinosaurs are getting off the island and biting kids and, uh, and other things like that. But, he does, but nobody is forthcoming with the, with the consultants on the, on the tour about any of this stuff. They keep all of that very secret, hush-hush. And I think that the, that is disappointing in that... All the evidence they needed to, to shut it down to say, hey, this isn't working, already existed. They didn't actually need consultants. But I guess so. the, the real difficult part was that maybe Gennaro had, was holding out hope that they were going to be able to spare the island. But it was, it's just bizarre that they didn't really provide all of the evidence needed. So remind me again what type of lawyer Gennaro was because mm -hmm. um, they mentioned it, and I forget specifically where, but it sounds like even though... Grant's telling him that he's shirking his duties. 
doesn't exactly sound like Gennaro's really uh, in his element. He's very much um, out of his depth in everything that's going on, even as a lawyer, despite all the big action sequences that he's in. is doesn't seem like it's necessarily mm-hmm. his job and his duty to uh, say yes or no on whether the island um goes forth or not yes he i think is a finance lawyer of some sort he seems to be a big part of the the fundraising campaign i don't know that he was actually ever in like a courtroom or anything like that um but you're right he does appear to be more like a he seems buff and fit but like tennis court buff and fit not uh (laughs) steve Irwin uh, (laughs) tough and fit yeah exactly he has the power to pull the funding not like pull a grenade Mm mm-hmm that's right. And he has to... <laughs> I think there's a scene where he's trying to load a rocket launcher and he puts the, the, the ammunition in backwards or something like that. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely yeah. out of place. Yeah, that was fantastic. I kept picturing it as a kid as I read it because I saw the movie first, read the book, then listened to an abridged audio version of it. And it wasn't until later that the toy figure of Muldoon came with the rocket launcher that <laughs> I believe it? was modeled after. <laughs> It comes with a rocket launcher. <laughs> of all the guys that should not have had a rocket launcher. <laughs> um, well, you make a good uh, point in terms of like imagining that if you were there and what you were going to do, um, we're, we're getting to a part in the novel where where the Tyrannosaur breaks out of the, the fences and we're talking about Regis and Gennaro. Gennaro wasn't there in the, in the book, but um, the whole concept of... of um, would you be a hero? What would you do in, in you know, being faced with a Tyrannosaurus that was going to try and get into your car? Um, do you think you'd fall in the lines of Grant or the kids, or do you think you'd be like a Regis, wet your pants and run away? <laughs> like, I can't even imagine. Uh, depending on where it is in that situation, but considering Grant even left his car, I would probably pee in my pants and run away. <laughs> I mean, I really don't blame him for it, but, yeah, he gets a not a real poetic moment later on but it's fitting for someone who just left kids behind yeah yeah and i think it's it's written well in terms of like it was automatic it was instinct and he couldn't help himself and uh it yeah it's a strange one to me i don't know if if you don't really get to choose how you die that doesn't seem to be one of the things that life gives you but if you could pick to be killed by a dinosaur, I mean, I might sign up for that. <laughs> if you got to go, everybody's got to go someday. <laughs> if you could go I, by dinosaur, I'd, I'd, I'd sign up for that. If you'd go by dinosaur, I'd probably pick the compies because out of all the deaths that you listen to, it seems like that one probably be the least painful, mm-hmm. more or less. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, after a while. What's funny with the compies is at the beginning, um, when... when uh, the girl gets bit she talks about how painful it was but at the at the end when hammond's getting bit it's about you know falling asleep and being anesthetized so there's kind of like a this strange but maybe they were trying to say she had an allergic reaction anyhow she they describe how the the poison affected the girl very differently than how it uh, how it affected hammond in the end but yeah well, it, let me let me ask you something about that then because this has been something that stuck through my mind um, from the very beginning. I don't know if it was within the prologue or the first few chapters when they're discussing the 
remains of the compi and especially when they were sequencing the dna to figure out what type of lizard it was mm -hmm. it came back as a uh chimera basically because um i forget the the doctor who was um had the report on it but it listed a whole bunch of different um toxins i believe right from various different animals amphibians and snakes they mentioned that it was very much like a cobra venom but it was more than that it was like cobra but i believe if i remember correctly it was talking about uh different things together and that kind of alludes to the uh combination of all of the different dna that they used to fill in the holes so with that being said the compies would they have naturally have had a uh, venomous bite like that? Or is that something that is a byproduct of the creatures that they use to fill in those holes? Mm -hmm. My interpretation, and this is just me, I don't know that the book spells this out quite quite like this or not, but especially as, as the park starts to fall apart, we get these, Wu goes back and looks into the, the DNA and he is reinvestigating why the animals are breeding and stuff like that and it comes to the point where it's believed that if they can breed maybe all of their systems of control are not what they expect them to be it's strongly implied that they actually haven't tested the lysine contingency so they don't know actually if that works or not which is crazy they think that you know they might have experimented with that a little bit but it sounds like that is uncertain they don't know if if that may or may not work my interpretation is that they cloned legitimate dinosaurs, that they got authentic dinosaurs, and none of their systems of control actually worked. Their their ability to keep them all female didn't work. I don't think the lysine contingency worked. That's my interpretation, that actually none of it worked, And uh, but that's not how it's kind of spelled out. It's just the way I look at it. So I would like to think that the, the compies as Crichton After perceived them, would have been venomous in that way. But there's also different things. Like, I think the when the Dilophosaur is venomous as well, um, these are all functions of it having a weak jaw. And therefore... And I think they even said the Tyrannosaur had a weak jaw. Like, there's a scene where I think Malcolm shows that he has, like, bruises on his stomach where the Tyrannosaur picked him up and thrown him and uh, out, of his, out of its mouth. And he's like... And then there's a mention of like how the, the dinosaurs didn't have strong jaws or something like that. And I was like, gee, that doesn't sound like a Tyrannosaurus at all. <laughs> but the Dilophosaurus specifically said that it was venomous and then it would wait for something to die and it could nibble as it saw fit. But of course, we see with Nedry that it like um, it, it chews and bites through bones without any trouble. So I don't know. <laughs> but uh, well, that's I, one thing that I do like about this book that Crichton seems to be um, towing the line is that are these real animals, aren't these, as well as if they are real animals, I love the idea of that. He's bringing in all of these characteristics, not just behavior, but things that don't fossilize or can't fossilize, mm -hmm. and what those things would be if you brought animals back from extinction that we have no idea what they would do, what they would be, or anything like that. So I love that he brought in things like venom and poison and eyesight and behavior mm -hmm. so that's that's that was fantastic reading up on throughout this and one thing about the <coughs> the breeding um in your most recent episode at this point episode 33 you brought up that german paper 
That's right. About uh, amphibians being able to uh, not spontaneously, but hermaphroditism. That's right. Yes, and what I thought interesting that you brought up was that that effect was in the animals that were in a very stressful environment. And so if you think about it, from all the we read so far, most of the animals that we see are sick or have some sort of Mm. um, illness or disease or anything like that. So if indeed uh, this DNA was used to fill in those holes, perhaps um, because these animals are in a stressful environment and going through the count of how many animals are on the island. And we know this island really isn't a big island. It really isn't Mm -hmm. a good island. That these animals are under stress and under stress, perhaps that's activating this gene to change from female to male and thus allow the breeding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. There was one chapter called Equilibrium, and it's after all the dinosaurs get out of their fences and they're eating the the other animals. And there's this idea that somehow the park is falling into balance. And uh, earlier there was some mention of like... um, the herbivore herbivore to carnivore ratio in the wild is like you know 25 to 1 or something crazy like that or 20 i forget exactly what the numbers were but the idea anyhow there were far too many carnivores on the island (laughs) to to last you know a month if they were to start eating the the herbivore so i mean there was no equilibrium to be found there but um yeah they're, they're certainly not in a in a in an environment that's fitting for their biology. I agree. The stegosaur is a great example. I think the triceratops were saying they were saying they had to keep them in the smaller groups because if the herd got too big, they started fighting each other and hurting each other. I think they said that about the triceratops. Yes, they did. I like I like yes that they they added some like strange physiological things to the dinosaurs that were perhaps creative on Crichton's part with the venom and, and things like that. I like in the film how they added the frill. I thought that was a, a clever way to do something. But more importantly, I think it was really interesting that uh, the animals had such interesting behaviors and unpredictable behaviors. And we know that obviously birds do just extraordinarily bizarre things of, of all the different species. And to think that dinosaurs did that sort of thing too is fascinating. I would have liked to have seen, especially in, in the sequel films and stuff like that, more exploration into like the strange behaviors that the animals had as opposed to as opposed to just i don't know always being hungry i guess (laughs) oh for sure that's one of the other things that crying does really good with both books is knowing that these are essentially um in the public's eyes monsters uh creations and um really uh stepping away from that and showing the animals in more of a animal light, such as the T-Rex being, at least in the movie, more curious, and the Dilophosaurus in the book during the river ride. Um, you get that whole sequence there. Mm-hmm. So as much less, uh, even with the carnivores, um, that these are always on attack mode and letting them breathe, such as the, the cut scene in the movie with the t-rex just sleeping i mean i thought in the book at that portion sure it's um a you could say a monster just having a nap but i read into it as hey here's like a lion who just finished a meal and is taking a nap whereas it could be a dangerous creature it isn't necessarily Mm -hmm. dangerous at that time so it made these animals all feel more real than just having them always on attack mode same thing with the 
sick stegosaurus and sick triceratops. These could be big, majestic herbivores just wandering around and strutting, but now I'm presenting them as, hey, yeah, these are creatures that do get sick and do have vulnerabilities, and it's nice to see a quote-unquote monster movie or monster book show more vulnerabilities and giving everything more life to them through mm-hmm. that means. And speaking of uh, cut scenes, I, I think that there was, I think there's truth to this, um, there was a scene in the book where they're spending the night in like a shed and when they wake up in the morning, there's a baby triceratops out front and they um, are feeding it hay and stuff like that. And I understand that that was a scene that where they actually had built the triceratops and they're going to film it, but they cut it before they uh, they they put it into the film. But it, I like that the novel does have those moments where you're ex, you know meeting some of the other animals and it's not always just running away, that they have... Have time to, to check them out and learn a little something about them. I think there's a scene where one of the hadrosaurs is surprised to see them while they're hiding up in a tree or something like that. And I think the same with the stegosaur they spend some time with and they spend time with the triceratops. So I, I like that there was even it wasn't just always running, you know? <laughs> correct. Even the um, Othnelia, I believe, who were sticking their heads up out of the grass mm-hmm. every time the honked the horn, it just made them feel more like deer or cows or. You know, just regular animals grazing the field. So when you emailed me, did you tell me that you shared this podcast with your English teacher, an old English teacher? Um, No, I will send this to my mom, who is an English teacher. Okay. Because I listened to the podcast earlier where you did have an English teacher on using it as um, a school assignment and everything. And the way you break down each chapter... I think she would get a real kick out of it because <laughs> I think it's a fantastic way to learn any book, any subject. So good job on you. <laughs> well, thank you. So what are your what are your favorite parts in the novel? What uh, what jumps out at you? What, what is kind of like the, the unforgettable stuff that, that you recall well, from the um, Obviously, the riverboat sequence always gets mm-hmm. me all the way to the waterfall. Going into the waterfall, the whole tongue sequence, and then just the waterfall <laughs> shutting down and going back over it just catching all the bits and pieces of everybody just missing each other Mm -hmm. whether it be not following the compies and finding nedry or whether it would be turning away from the computer monitors at any certain point or whatnot just these little touches of uh, the part where if any one of these things was followed up on or saw at the correct time, maybe a lot of this disaster could be um, prevented, but then that goes back, Crichton expertly does, into finding all these little things that could go wrong, that do go wrong, that then lead to the chaos that we do see. So I think it's great interspersing all of these small moments and just piling them all up. Yeah, there is kind of that feeling of final, you know, the film Final Destination where <laughs> things just conspire to, to go wrong. Yeah, and there's a lot of moments like, uh, oh, you just missed him. He was right here <laughs> in, a, in a pokeroo sort of way. Maybe I... Yeah, that goes back to even how the T-Rex is uh, stopped at the waterfall, that whole sequence there. Mm. And they just, another miss right there is, I thought, was really well written. And I love the idea of that waterfall just disappearing because it shows that even the natural environment itself, not just the animals, are all man-made and curated and sculpted. Mm-hmm. So that was, I thought, a really great and just unforeseen sequence. And it's bizarre how that, that river sequence 
and the swimming dinosaurs has not really found its way into any of the sequels after we we've got you know 20 hours of sequel movies out there and uh and uh i think they've only been with a swimming dinosaur for a flash of a second so it's fascinating that uh that element especially being chased on the river and the crocodile and jumping out of the way well i guess the the spinosaur was pretty good when he got in the river yeah but he the wasn't swimming, dilophosaurus really. scene always gets me in the book because yeah that portion along the river again you see these we've been introduced to them as um very dangerous very threatening creatures and what we get in the book are just two animals doing a mating call and a mating dance and even that plays into what's going on at the park because they can't control the breeding and here's right you know visual evidence that hey what they thought they had control of is slowly changing and slowly getting out of their control so that sequence right there I thought was great. I would have loved to see not just a, a carnivore um, tranquilized and asleep that way, but just have a carnivore not caring about people at all besides mm-hmm. what we get in most of the movies. So that, that one episode with Danielle Weigel, and she was talking about uh, her exercises in, in helping her students discuss... You know, discuss the choices that were made in the adaptation from the novel into the film. And they were pretty interesting in terms of what, I guess you're restricted in some ways, but still you have to kind of tell an interesting story, which kind of brings us out of the novel and into the movie. What was your, your first time going to see Jurassic Park like? When Jurassic Park came out, I was nine years old. <laughs> and I keep kept thinking when I got older, was it Jurassic Park like made me... Uh, really big into dinosaurs like did Jurassic Park really fuel an interest in dinosaurs to me or did I like dinosaurs before then Mm -hmm. and I had just recently in the process of moving found an old picture of myself from 1991 (laughs) um, visiting a dinosaur park in South Dakota so I like to think that my interest in dinosaurs came before the movie then nine years old 1993 I saw it in theaters. I'd like to say I saw it nine times um, when the movie came out in theaters. And I say that mainly because each time we went to go see it, I always had to go to the bathroom at the exact same spot. And it's during the (laughs) Nedry sequence of all things. Every single time I'd have to get up and go to the bathroom and miss out that whole entire thing. So I kept wanting and kept pushing to go see the movie until I finally sat down and saw that part in theaters. I can see the theater now saying, where does he think he's going? When you got to go, you got to go. Gotta go, gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> so who did you go with? You went nine times. Uh, is... Mostly with my dad. Yeah. I'm sure he's he's a real trooper for <laughs> sending a going with a nine-year-old kid to the same movie over and over. There was one time when we were visiting a relative out in Pennsylvania at the time we went to go see not only that because I pushed that but I think Robin Hood Men in Tights was playing at the same time okay and so we went to both of them because they were tired of seeing Jurassic Park over (laughs) and over and at that showing of Jurassic Park there was two old ladies sitting directly behind us and every time something scary would happen they would just bust a gut laughing hysterically (laughs) And I got so mad at them, I turned around and I shushed them. Okay. <laughs> this little kid telling two old ladies to be quiet, essentially. Trying to watch the dinosaurs. Shh. 
this is only my sixth time and I've missed out on <laughs> most parts each time. So you read the book, you read the movie, you've enjoyed the, the franchise, and all of that leads you down into this terrible rabbit hole where somehow you came across the Jurassic Park cast. Where did you come across this <laughs> and what made you click on it? You know what, like everything else, um, apparently of this series, I can't remember the origin. It just all suddenly became my life now. <laughs> so as far as I'm concerned, I've always been listening to this podcast ever since it came out. <laughs> so I'm sure the real answer is I was looking for something to listen to at work while I'm bored, and I discovered the podcast just by searching for it. So, And I'm glad I did because... I love the breakdown of the podcast of each chapter and really delving into um, all the specifics and minutia that I never picked up on through all the years reading and rereading and watching and listening to the book and mm -hmm. the movies. So it's been fantastic. So thank you. I love doing it. Obviously wouldn't do it if I didn't. <laughs> I think one of the things yeah. that makes Jurassic Park work is that and there's this perfect line in the movie but it's the same thing with the with the novel the whole crux of it survives on the idea that you see dinosaurs and, and alan grant says how did you do this and hammond says i'll show you and the novel spends so much time explaining how this is possible and making it as viable as as it could and and that is where really it's it's longevity i think exists because this is the one story where they put dinosaurs in it and it makes sense like, why are dinosaurs and people stuck together? It's not like they just wound up through some time portal or something like that. They, that he, he brought them back in the most believable way means something, and it means a lot. And it, and it survived all this time as, a, as a, an expression of its viability. And I think that is the crux. And if Hammond had just said, don't worry about how we did it. <laughs> Let's go look at the dinosaurs. The movie wouldn't work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, what's really cool about the writing is that all the science that goes that he writes about um, how to clone a dinosaur is all wrapped in the science of the theme park and the science of the people invested because you were talking about um, I believe is Regis who had the background in uh, theme park design John Arnold John Arnold's Arnold, that's thing. right that's right Arnold had the background in theme park design and uh, through your research you went through a specific company that he might have worked for in the time period of which this book was written. So that's something that Crichton probably had researched um, theme park companies and who would have built what and whatnot and kind of, you know, filed the serial numbers off of to give Arnold um, that background and going into that depth and that detail for a character then makes, um, not only is that like plausible and potentially real mm -hmm. um, for something like that to happen, but it allows the reader to invest in the idea of dinosaurs being able to be cloned and brought back. Mm -hmm. So the fiction part of it is really wrapped in the science and the research. Yeah, definitely put a lot of research into it. And it, it makes some of the characters more believable. And it, and it kind of, in, a, in another way, like the lack of backstory that goes into Dr. Ellie Sattler, I think, stands apart because... Everybody else gets so much, and even Grant doesn't get much backstory. Like we hear that he's very prominent in his field, but we don't hear much about 
why he got into dinosaurs. We don't. We we do find out at one moment there's a throwaway line that he's uh, he's a widower, but um, we don't get much about him being married or what his married life was like. They, like there's so much of our heroes are not explored. Where it's it's all the park designers that we get backstories on, which is very interesting. We learn not even a lot about Hammond, but Arnold we get lots, Wu we get lots, Nedry we get lots. It's, it's the people that we wind up killing in Slashing are the ones that. Uh, we spend all this time on, or Crichton spends time on uh, giving us their backstory. Maybe to make their the horror of their deaths uh, stick with you a little better. I don't know if it, you can't kill somebody unless you feel great empathy for them or else it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's more visceral with um, knowing where these people came from, for sure. And I believe that also plays into the workers and designers of the park. goes back to fleshing out this is a thing that could be real. These are people that do come from real backgrounds and all of our hero, hero characters that don't necessarily have the same background written for them. We still do spend a lot of time with those characters and having less of a background to me reads as um, kind of a um, reader insertion into those characters' shoes. Mm -hmm. Whereas you do bring up a good point with Ellie is that she's just sort of there for most of it until Crichton needs her. <laughs> she sticks out amongst all of them for being half-baked is what I call it. I can't say I've read too many Crichton novels, but is there um, a, I don't say a pattern, but does he write female characters well? Hmm. I know in Sphere, uh, there's definitely one that Sharon Stone plays in the movie. I know in Timeline, there's definitely one who goes back in time and, and has an adventure. Yeah, there's usually a female lead that's a hero in that uh, joins the heroes. Um, but as, are they written as well? Like a, yeah. I think they're always scientists in their field. I want to say, I don't know if it was Micro or Nano or what the name of the book was, but I think one of them even got to be a villain, <laughs> which is kind of fun. I, I couldn't say with certainty, but I know that they're there, and I know that they're, they're main characters. Um I don't know about Andromeda Strain. I can't recall. I don't think in R Rising Sun. Obviously in, uh, was it Disclosure? Well, if we, <laughs> if we, well I was going to say, if we step outside of his authorship, um, Ian Twister, Helen Hunt's character, was very well written mm -hmm. as a screenplay. Yeah, and I think the film adaptations, now he might have written Twister with his wife at the time. I'm trying to recall. I wonder if he did. I think he did. And, and certainly Spielberg picked up on, on when he decided we're going to put Sattler in here. He really did a conscientious effort to say we're going to do Sattler better than what Crichton did in the book. She needs to be improved and, and, and Spielberg made a bunch of good choices with her because she's, she's a great character in the film as well. Yeah, and I love the, the race that Ellie did in the movie to the shed, the maintenance shed, and doing the jump over the logs mm -hmm. and the splash in the water. And then when you read in the book is more of a homage that sequence to what Ellie's action, her main action is in the book. So that was a really nice touch of cinematography there, I thought. Mm -hmm. So everyone's all these thoughts are after the fact, not my nine-year-old self when I went <laughs> to go see the movie and read the book. <laughs> so speaking of all of the, the movie and, and everything and the podcast and the dinosaurs, Drew is here on this show because he listened to episode 23, Control, my great guest Dan Rose and we were stuck on the ridiculous concept that three raptors in the raptor pen had somehow 
spontaneously changed gender, mated, escaped the raptor pen, laid a bunch of eggs, and then went back into the raptor pen just so that Grant could find the eggs and proclaim that Malcolm was right, life found a way, and give us a tagline that floats the believability of five more ridiculous movies. <laughs> and my interpretation of all of that makes it sound so contrived. And that's because I'm tainted, I think, by nostalgia. I cannot separate my interpretations of the movie from my preteen first impressions. I'm horribly, irredeemably corrupted by my childhood nostalgia for the film, and envisioning it with fresh eyes is incredibly difficult. And this is why I welcomed Drew to join the show, because there is so much I cannot see, and he's come to shed the light. <laughs> so, Drew, uh, shine on, man. What, why are the raptor eggs out in the wild far more believable than I could have ever hoped to understand? That is a interesting thing that we really have to straddle the line between what's canon, what's um, movie canon, book canon, and even fan-made canon as mm -hmm. we try to piece everything all together. Because a lot of these um, insinuations uh, from the movie, because they had to pare things down and kind of let the visual storytelling tell itself versus what could be uh, read through the book versus what we as fans can interpret. Well, actually, let's start with the raptor pen itself, if you wouldn't mind, because that's the very first thing we see mm -hmm. in the movie. So in the movie, we see the the crate being loaded into the pen itself. You see everyone standing around, and what you see is just a cement slab and a giant structure next to it. Now, if you think about the size of the animals, and even one in there would be kind of crowded so why would they have an exhibit of these dangerous creatures in a really small confined location so my reading of that was that's just a temporary holding location for these animals that were potentially in another pen somewhere else out in the park then later on when the guests arrive to that same holding area um, they're said that the main the big one killed all but two of the others so we know there's three in there, and there were more raptors later on. So it would not make, or earlier, so it would not make any sense for them to hold however many raptors they had at the time. In the book, it said there were eight. So you can't have eight raptors in there. Mm -hmm. They had to bring them in from somewhere else. So for tourism purposes, it doesn't make sense to have, essentially, you can't see them in there from the top. So it doesn't make sense to have a exhibit right there of the most dangerous creatures in the park. So at the time, they had to have been in a different fence area. So a temporary location like that for not just raptors, but any animals that would need um, their enclosures fixed, I would assume, would be brought there. And then their fence locations, whatever, fixed, and then the animals brought back to their holding area now. I'm sure that's not how zoos work. Zoos are, have the containment areas closer to where the animals actually are. But, you know, this is a movie in that sense. And that goes on with the book as well, because in the book they hit a chain link fence that's electrocuted. But that is still within a very close proximity to where the visitor center actually is. And that doesn't make too much sense either unless you think about it as a temporary holding facility. That's right. And I think in the book, they were supposed to be in Velociraptor Valley. That would be their pen out in the park. Obviously, in the film, they would have likely been somewhere in the park on display. 
But not anymore. And now that, they're the pen. <laughs> all nice and cozy with each other. Yeah, and then in all the maps uh, in 93 that you can find, and even I still have all these many years later, they have an area for Velociraptors on the tour map, and it sort of wraps around the T-Rex enclosure, more or less, uh, in a like you or horseshoe shape. And so if you figure that's where the Velociraptors originally were, that makes sense. It's a nice big area for animals that do a lot of running and a lot of hunting. And so these animals, the three raptors that they have, were brought from their locations to the temporary holding location, and thus they can fix the fence that they were attacking systematically. So it doesn't make sense for them to attack the the enclosure that they're at systematically because it's a small location. Mm -hmm. And so obviously it had been somewhere else that the raptors were attacking when the feeders were coming. And that's how I was envisioning it. And then with that, um, we get the line from Muldoon. Um, the, with the big one, she killed all but two of the others. And so with the little footsteps we see in the movie after the brachiosaur moment, you really can't match up those footprints with most of the animals. So they'd had to bend the velociraptor mm. footprints. At least that's how I was reading, especially when you take a look at them. And again, a lot of this uh, in the movie has to be inferred because we don't have any of this all spelled out. And so that goes to whether or not this is just a fan-made explanation, if this is what the filmmakers and Spielberg were going for. I suppose we could ask, but as far as I know, this is the most plausible way of all this happening. Then we get down to who made or who laid the eggs that hatched and the timeline of everything hatching. So it's your belief that they're all out in the park and had changed gender, mated, and laid the eggs. And then I like the idea that after that's occurred, maybe that is why the big one gets aggressive. That now that it has a, a nest to protect or something like that, that is perhaps what instigated it to become more ferocious with the other animals. So maybe this is the, the inciting incident that leads it to kill all but two of the others. And then, you're right, they, they would thrash up their pen and uh, have to be taken away. And that leads us to the opening scene of the film where they're t putting the, the raptors back into containment. So they can go, and you were saying, theorizing, perhaps fix up the, the facilities because they'd been uh, so much trouble. And that leaves these unsupervised uh, eggs out in the park all by themselves. <laughs> and that we can, I really like that. And it does make sense for the big one to ha be so aggressive. I do have to think, though, does that fit the timeline of introdu the introduction of the big one to the paddock? Because we get a line that says when the big one was introduced, then she killed it. But that could just be come down to word and placement by Muldoon at that time. Because mm -hmm. it could say that when the big one was introduced, she immediately killed all but two of the others in a immediate... <laughs> Introduction, yeah. <laughs> How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm a... Dominance, there we go. I'm a raptorcidal maniac. Exactly. It, it does sound that way. Yeah, it sounds that way. That as soon as she went in there, she just killed everybody right away. So to me, if, if that makes sense, that she 
was very territorial that way and um, displaying her dominance uh, that way, then that means the eggs were hatched by some other raptor, either maybe one of the two surviving ones, mm -hmm. uh, maybe in Velociraptor society, for lack of a better word, we can get into that with the lost world. Um, maybe the females are dominant and the males are subservient. And in the book, we hear from, was it Wu who said that the difference between males and females can sometimes be indistinguishable. So mm. for velociraptors or at least this iteration of velociraptors, that could be true. They cannot see visually which ones are male or female or when they spontaneously change, that won't be noticed because there is no visual cue to a regular person. Mm -hmm. And I think if the raptors were taken away from their nest, put into the holding pen, that this would be a viable reason for them to be attacking the fences, trying to get out of there. And I like that idea. It's not just necessarily they attack the fences looking for weaknesses because the feeders are coming, but they're, they're trying to get back to their eggs. I thought that would be an interesting bit, although that's not really implied <laughs> at all by the dialogue or, or the, the scene, but it would be interesting to me. So it makes more sense <laughs> in any case than, than escaping and then laying the eggs. Uh, in the book, they say that it takes about two months for the eggs to gestate. I thought it was a little longer than that. But... Yeah, so if it is two months for Velociraptor eggs to gestate, then would it make sense for the big one to wait before killing every other raptor for two months or kill them right away in a dominant display? Mm -hmm. Like Either one makes sense in that we go back to whether fan headcanon would make sense either way for that. But yeah, that would be a plot hole in the movie that isn't necessarily all that important. It does get its point across and it goes down to making it a tight film to show and explore everything that can be explained from the book and dinosaurs already hatching and having babies running across the park that aren't accounted for is just a part of the novel that would take too many words to explain that if they can just show, hey, here's a nest and here's mm -hmm. footprints, you know, and here's some broken eggs. I think that they made a really smart choice in that. Mm-hmm. I was, I remember at one point I discovered or realized, you know what, the, the raptors that were wild in the park didn't matter. They didn't change the movie in any way. And I think that's kind of disappointing that, <laughs> you know. Oh, this... no, that was a really cool thing that should have been brought in any movie. And frankly, with Dominion, when they were showing um, pictures of the Department of Fish and Wildlife, I thought that would have been a perfect way of introducing migratory raptors mm -hmm. you would have the department of fish and wildlife maybe following some migratory raptors and some well with dominion in movie um canon you know blue is quote unquote the only one left but they could still work in something with the breeding um outside of engines control so that would have been cool to to bring up at that point but yeah um Nixing that whole entire scene and sequence is good. And I go back to in Lord of the Rings when they were trying to edit down those movies and paring things down to the essential story. Mm -hmm. It came down to the path of the ring and what was important to the ring, which is mm -hmm. why you didn't get Tom Bombadil and other portions of 
the series <laughs> that were cut, you know, and it made for a much more streamlined movie that still kept with the crux of the narrative. And so they did the same thing with Jurassic Park by cutting everything extraneous and paring it down to what they can visually show everybody. Mm-hmm. I find like uh, that Tom Bombadil reference has got to be something that's only for people who have read the books because you wouldn't know it if you had to watch the film. What do they get hugged by trees and then Tom Bombadil bounces in and sings a bunch of songs and tells the trees to let him go? It's such a bizarre moment in those. <laughs> Maybe we'll cut this part Fantastic. out. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Well, what I find interesting is the um, juvenile T Rex. Yeah. Because they yeah. said that there's two T Rexes, a juvenile one. And my nine-year-old self going to the toy store, the T-Rex that we were able to get was the juvenile one. Mm-hmm. That never really made much sense to me as a kid because, you know, it's not a full T-Rex. Why would it be a juvenile? Maybe it's just a juvenile that was then uh, introduced and then grown up to be a big one. But then reading the novel and seeing all the different areas where the juvenile T-Rex is uh, prominent animal in certain sequences really made a lot more sense than when you fast forward to Jurassic World and they're doing all their promotional stuff. They brought back the juvenile T-Rex and their maps and some of their promotions, but they didn't do anything with that either. Mm-hmm. So if you just watch the movies and didn't pay attention to anything else, like the books or whatnot, you would not know that there were two T-Rexes on the original island, That's right. which I thought was a real shame. would have been really interesting interesting to me if they introduced the juvenile which i suppose you could say they kind of did with Jurassic park three redconning a little bit i suppose but you know it is what it is it would have been nice to see a little bit more of a younger t-rex mm-hmm. i think what we were talking before about how the dinosaur behavior was nice in the book it is nice in the book and um and that that the juvenile appearing is kind of what saves our heroes on the river when the tyrannosaur jumps into the river and chases them because uh, the juvenile approaches the the dead hadrosaur that the big rex had killed and when it sees that the little uh, the juvenile was perhaps going to take its uh, its hadrosaur it abandons pursuing the, the the kids on the raft and goes back to protect its kill so i thought that was that they put more dino- tyrannosaur behavior into that was good i think having the juvenile in the film would have been a great way to do that but um Obviously, I mean, they were limited in what they could do in 93. Uh, what we did get was awesome. <laughs> but you're right, in the sequels, it would have been more fun to see a little bit more behavior. I know in The Lost World, the novel, um, a lot more tyrannosaur behavior and nesting and, and things like that were done. I think there's a scene in the, uh, the Lost World where one of the tyrannosaurs marks their territory by squatting on the hood of the one of their vehicles and uh, uh, poops on it <laughs> or something like that. I think that happens. They do a There's lot a lot of stuff like that that happens in the second book, which was really interesting. <laughs> to think about. Well, we're just about out of time here. Uh, I think as per the terms agreed upon by our lawyers, you are free to cross the bridge as you wish. You can deliver the, the littlest Billy Goat gruff to me, you know, before Christmas, whatever. <laughs> whatever works for you. Thanks for coming on. This has been a lot of fun. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And I hope that cleared up the situation with the Raptors for you. It's been a lot of fun. I'm glad you reached out. Uh, This has been excellent. I hope all the English teachers and mothers in your life enjoy the podcast when you share it. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. A special thank you to Drew Hagen for for joining me. Thanks for touching base, reaching out, and, uh, and coming on the show. I really appreciate it.
This week's text is Return, spanning from pages 191 to 193, a bit of a short chapter. Synopsis, driving in a gas-powered jeep, Harding, Gennaro, and Sattler are impeded by a large fallen tree. Their radios are down and they can't report the damage back to the control room. Characters. Harding, he finds a downed tree blocking the road and knows they cannot move it, so attempts to report it in to Arnold back at control on page 191, but discovers the radios are out. Harding believes the Land Cruisers should have already returned to the visitor center by this time, outside the range of their little set on page 192. Harding feels it'll likely take the maintenance crew hours before they come to come out to remove the fallen tree, and so turns off the radio and heads back to the turnout to get onto the maintenance road. Harding suggests that by using the secondary maintenance road back through the park, that they may even get lost on page 192. And this suggests that there must be a series of arteries deviating all along the path, which connect to feeding areas, storage areas, sheds, and other paraphernalia required to operate the park. Donald Gennaro. He remarks that the downed tree blocking the road is, quote, a hell of a tree, suggesting that the storm is proving to be very powerful on page 191. And he believes the radios are being affected by the storm as well. And so this isn't because of Nedry. This happens to be because of the storm, I think. Uh, John Arnold. He's back at control, but he can't be reached on the radio on page 191. And he worries that the system might be fried during a power surge, which happens on 192. And they, then they lose power. With the power going out, he stresses. And as the computers come back on after the power surge, he collapses back in his chair in relief. He sent guards out to get Nedry back. They need Nedry to stop the park from shutting down. Arnold reveals that he's been trying to reach the Land Cruisers on the radios unsuccessfully as well on page 193. There are six channels on the radio. He's resorted to using, quote, this because, quote, the main board is down. There's no indication as to what this is, but presumably it's one of the small walkie-talkies that Harding was also trying to use to raise the Land Cruisers unsuccessfully on 193. As far as Arnold knows, the Land Cruisers are safe and just stuck in the rain, and everybody should be okay, so there's no urgency. He and Muldoon are leery about telling Hammond that the grandkids are stuck out in the park, and Arnold is resigned to waiting for Nedry to return. He can't restore the systems until Nedry fixes what he's done. To track what he did would take hours of staring at the system code. Dr. Ellie Sattler, upon hearing that the radios are down, she suggests that they try connecting with the Land Cruisers. I don't know how, because the radios are down, though. Dennis Nedry. Arnold has sent guards to get him back. He's probably reading a comic book on the toilet, thinks Arnold. They need, they need Nedry to restore the systems at the park, and nobody can find him. Robert Muldoon. Muldoon is upset that someone's taken the Jeep he prepared earlier, and he's hoping to retrieve the guests from the park, but he can't without the gas-powered Jeep. He doesn't like that the walkies and radios aren't able to raise the Land Cruisers, and it reaffirms his intentions to go get the tourists from the park. But all the maintenance vehicles are over in the east garage, more than a mile away. They're counting on Harding returning with the vehicle soon, and Muldoon wonders if anyone's told Hammond that his grandkids haven't returned yet. And John Hammond, uh, all we know here is that if he knew his grandkids were stuck out in the park, he would be furious. Some localities. Uh, there's some road that they're on. A tree has fallen and blocked this road, and they're out of range of the visitor center on the little sets they use to communicate between cars. The radios and the walkies aren't useful in the storm. Maintenance crews will take hours to get out and remove this tree that's blocking the, this road, and if they double back toward the southern fields, they can find the turnout and get onto a maintenance road, uh, which is a second road system for animal handlers, feed trucks, and so on. And this reroute may take 30 to 40 minutes. The visitor center. Guards have been looking for Nedry for five minutes, and in five minutes, Arnold figures that the guards should have found him by now. If he's in the building, 
This suggests that the visitor center isn't, in fact, especially big. For all the rooms and security cards, even for a couple of people to cover the entire grounds in five minutes, it suggests that this just isn't a very big facility. Stylistic techniques. We have italic flick flick of the wipers on 191. Uh, this is also onomatopoeia, where the word sounds like the word that it denotes. This reminds me of the terrific joke where a doctor tells his patient, I'm afraid you have onomatopoeia. To which his patient replies, Jeez, doc, is it serious? And the doctor answers gravely, It's as bad as it sounds. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> M-dashes. Uh, the telephone line in M-dash. Bang! M-dash. No more motherboard. Page 192. Uh, and this is more onomatopoeia here with, uh, with the bang and the exclamation mark. But in this case, the M-dashes serve as an interruption in the sentence, suggesting this noise interferes with the telephone line. It's very fitting. And in this case, it's Arnold dramatically portraying what it would be like, bang, for the motherboard to be fried. Literary techniques, we have irony. Quote, oh damn, will you look at that, says Harding to start the chapter. And you'd think that he was shocked or dismayed by discovering that the Tyrannosaur had escaped and eaten everybody, because this comes immediately after just such a thing has just happened. And sequentially, it may, it'd make sense that we're reviewing the horrific scene that uh, left in the wake of the Tyrannosaur. But instead, Harding is just upset that a tree has fallen across the road. His emergency plays ironically against the emergency we've just witnessed with the Tyrannosaur attack in the previous chapter. And it pales in comparison as well. Onomatopoeia, as I outlined its use already, there's no need to repeat this, but we had the flick flick of the wipers, and we have the bang with an exclamation mark, uh, no more motherboard, that came earlier. And both those words are spelt like the sound. Discussion. Uh, we have some problems with narration. Uh, can't raise them on the radio, Arnold says. Quote, I have to use this because the main board is down. It's weak, but it ought to work. I've tried on all six channels. I know they have radios in the cars, but they're not answering on 193. The added emphasis is mine, where I said this. Crichton has failed to say what this is that Arnold is using and trying all six channels on. But, I mean, I believe that we're told that the car has some walkie-talkies. The walkie is mentioned briefly as everyone is climbing into the Land Cruisers and receiving their pit helmets. Remember that part? <laughs> Yeah, me neither. But it's it's probably because we're only uh, they were only mentioned once, and they're then hardly referred to again. And then when they are referred to, it's with this indeterminate identifier like this, rather than saying what this is. So the author or the editors or some combination of the two have let us down in this instance. It's unclear. It should be more clear than this. Island layout. Uh, let's wrap up the discussion here with uh, one last observation about the gas-powered jeeps on the island. According to Muldoon, the maintenance vehicles are all stored in the east garage, which is a mile away to the east of the visitor center. It could be, in fact, almost close to that east dock. Uh, in retrospect, rather than waiting for the 40 minutes for Harding's jeep to return or for the walkies and radios to work again, he could have walked the 15 minutes to walk a mile to the east garage and got himself one of those maintenance vehicles to and been on his way out into the park. I mean, without the rocket launchers, but he'd be out there, right? And of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. He could have done this and, and saved himself some time, but he also could have just sent a guard or one of the crew people to go and get the maintenance vehicle for him and ordered him to do it in double speed, and then he would have had it within a half hour anyhow, right? <sighs> That's no matter. We don't, I don't think, hear about the East Garage and the other gas power vehicles at any point again. And as we're about to wrap up this episode, let me once again thank Drew Hagen for, for joining me and sharing his thoughts on Jurassic Park. I, I really have had my, my mind changed on, on the velociraptors in the park and the eggs and things like that. So that, that's great. I appreciate it. <laughs> and I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book and add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. 
If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line and we can try and set something up and we can rehash and tear down and gush over and chit-chat about any part of the book. Also not the book. Like it like. Jurassic Podcast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the Infantry, and the worst of them all, the King Street Gamers. And you can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers or me on Twitter at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly for tuning in to the Jurassic Podcast the Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park. Also, not that too. Until next time.